was on a bit of a break. But we are back this week with Frank Perry for his second visit. Why so soon again? Well, because my head kind of exploded this past week. I finally had time to start his book, Red Collar, White Collar Crime, Corporate Predatory and Violent Fraud Offenders. And I am pretty much questioning so many things I have said in my presentations, such as good people make bad decisions. Well, get ready to start questioning maybe what you have said about white collar crime. I want to do a couple more episodes with Frank because he is great and an attorney to boot. How can that be in Kelly's world? Well, you have to listen. We talk fraud mythology, moral ambiguity, and accidental drug dealers. We all have projection bias, and I think it really plays into our vision of white collar crime. This summer, we are going to be a bit inconsistent, but I think we really need to enjoy life, read a ton, listen to a ton of podcasts, and STFU. What do I mean by that? I'm going to be doing an episode about a great book I read, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World by Dan Lyons. Go and grab this book. Of course, I heard him on the Pivot podcast and immediately bought it for my plane flight. It is so good and it is really changing a lot for me. I think everyone, especially attorneys, should read this book. No outro today. We are on summer break, so I can only do so much. Have a great week. you guys this is like I, I can't even tell you what I'm doing right now because my head is like literally exploding and we have with us the second time Frank Perry who people know as should know as the red collar crime guy but lawyer and you guys know me and lawyers but Frank is a special type of lawyer and um he's blown my mind with his book and of course I'm going to put it in the show notes um and you guys have to get it but um, he's blown my mind because I always say with my pink collar crime, good people make bad choices. And I'm reading the book and my head is swirling. So I want to start off reading this um, chapter one. I'm just going to start off right off the bat. Um, comparatively, the white-collar offender has escaped the type of in-depth scrutiny and academic analysis non-white-collar offenders are subjected to, to due to an implied credibility about their character they have received from academia, the criminal justice system, and society at large. That is one of the most, I'm going to say, kind of, it encapsulates all what us fraud examiners do, I think. Like, did that just come to you or was that like one of the hardest sentences you did in the book? Because it's perfect. I will share with you that the beginning was the hardest part to write because that's where you have to really good dig deep in your guts and ask yourself, what is it that you're trying to convey to a reader? You know, because that sets the tone for the entire book, because the entire book is going to show how that, in fact, that statement that you read is true among other things that I said. And uh, and something like that also came hard. I had to also question my own thoughts about crime, my own personal biases about crime. And it took me on, a, I would say, almost a 20-year journey to really dig deep and to try to understand this offender class that came about and I won't go into the detail about it, but it came about after I actually was involved in a red collar crime where one business owner uh, killed another business owner. 
and there was fraud involved, a homicide, and it gave me pause. I actually had to sit back and think about how is this possible when I'm thinking this shouldn't happen? Well, it did happen. And then here we are right now, a book later, 20 years later almost, and we're having this conversation. Well, and like, I like to try and bridge academia and like real life cases. Um, And it's hard. It's really, really hard to do it. And we were talking before this um, and uh, oh my God, Frank has so many amazing citations, like truly it's like the encyclopedia, but um, then it goes to, there appears to be an imbalance, how white collar criminals are perceived as offenders and what they truly represent in terms of harboring a criminal mindset that is open to exploiting others and organizations. And we said this beginning, if I look at, if I look, let's just say at, um, say a poor person who lives on the wrong side of the tracks, drives a crappy car, um, wears low hanging pants and say that they, you know, got caught selling drugs. I could never see myself doing that. Never. Because I don't look like them. I haven't had those experiences. I have a much more privileged life. But when I see a office worker, an executive commit a crime and they look like me and they have my background. It's a it's not only a wake up call, but it's also do we give them some slack? What do you think? I would have to say that this is okay. That's a, a great example. This is what happens. Number one, people are succumb to what I refer to as the seduction of appearances. And that what happens is, is that people assume that a certain type of appearance means that you cannot harbor criminal thinking traits, that somehow you're not open to exploitation. And as I and as I've said often in my lectures, is that Again, some of the most well-mannered, well-adjusted, well-educated people plan and commit some of the worst atrocities in our history. But the problem is that we engage in projection bias, where we make assumptions that because we harbor a certain value system, that we believe that other people within our circle also harbor that. Somebody who what I would characterize as, quote, the other, the stranger, doesn't harbor those types of value systems because they're further away from what we view as acceptable. And we make certain assumptions, often wildly inaccurate, about what these people represent or don't represent. And what I mean by these people, and I want to be very clear, we we understand this, I'm talking about at times when we look at uh, people that are from a different socioeconomic background, And that we make automatically applied assumptions about what they are, what their value system is, and I could go on and on and on. We put somebody else in front of us who speaks in complete sentences, who is well-groomed, and all of a sudden we make certain assumptions that, well, this person has my value system. They are impliedly, that implied credibility. We give them that credibility without really understanding what is that person's really, what are they about? What what is what is their world view? Do we really know? But think about how easy it is, how people so easily entrust other people with their money, only to find out that they've been scammed. That what you were really dealing with was just a snake in a in a suit. 
a wolf in sheep's clothing. And until we really get over this, until we get over this, I'm just, just sadly, I just think that we will be open to exploitation, both at the individual level and at the organizational level, given the fact that white collar crime dwarfs street level crime in terms of, say, just financial financial costs. We're not even talking about the emotional devastation that somebody may appear because the company went bankrupt, because they were uh, fleeced, or say, say elderly fraud. You know, somebody who, who may be frail and trusting, yet at the end of the day, they are just easy pickings. Well, and we talked about this, this uh, um, moral ambiguity. And um, Again, like I can sit across the table from someone who, you know, looks like me and I can develop rapport very quickly. Like, oh, your kids went to this school. My kids went to this school. Da, da, da. I sit across the table from someone who doesn't look like me. Developing that rapport is much more difficult. It's much more difficult. And also consider with with this concept of what I say that we have morally ambiguity is that, you know, how 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 should I say it? We give we we have this presumption that somehow somebody who commits fraud was forced into it, that there's some pressure. It was not planned. And I even see this from fraud examiners. I put it in the book where I, I talk about how they make these assumptions that oh, nobody wakes up and says, this is what I'm going to do one morning. No, it is. They, people do wake up no differently than how am I going to sell my drugs today? I have a narcotics apparatus. I got to move my product. Why is there the belief that somebody can't go into an organization thinking, where are the weak links in the internal controls so I can exploit it? There are thousands of people who do this all the time. What happens, though, Kelly, is that what do businesses typically do? They fire the person. They don't have the person prosecuted. They don't want to get involved. They don't want their reputation or whatever the dynamic is. So what happens? like a snake in the grass, they're going to pick up, you know, and they're going to go to another organization because organizations are not going to give uh, recommendations anymore. As you know, they rarely give recommendations for, for legal purposes. So what happens? They just move on to the next target. So that morally ambiguity, I think, is special in a sense that we compartmentalize crime. We have and I'm just throwing out some examples. We have the arsonists. We have the sexual assault people. We have the drug dealers. We have the terrorists. We put them in one box. And then for some reason, we take this crime classification and we isolate it and put it under another box. And somehow we give it a different aura. There's a, there's a different complexion about it all of a sudden. Look at what's written, for example, if I, and if I could just digress a moment, with Elizabeth Holmes. Yes. I'm sure many of your listeners probably know who she is. But look at the attention she's been given. There was a massive spread in the New York Times, I think in the review section, with her on the cover. Oh, it was awful. And talking about what a, you know. Her motherhood, God bless, she's a great mom. I, I'm not here to take you away, but how she's sympathetic and all charismatic. And I'm thinking, well, okay, why don't we put an arsonist on the front cover of your review of the New York Times? Why don't we put, and I'm not trying to be facetious here, but what is it about this 
type of crime classification and its offender that gives it that extra credibility that no other crime classification seems to get. Do we put Ted Bundy in there or Charles Manson or anybody else and say, gee, what a great guy these people were. Let me tell you about the, you know, they walked the the, the elderly, elderly lady across the street and somehow that's going to supposed to do what? Is that supposed to mitigate the, 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 the damage they did to people's lives? But somehow the fraud offender has gotten away with this and it's perpetuated even to this day. So this is, okay, I got to go to this one section. Okay, I'm going to tell you the page because I just, uh, this goes to the some judges. <laughs> the okay. judges. I was just like, okay, where is the, oh, this is page 28. Quote, another judge believes for, quote, for white collar criminals, the mere fact of prosecution, pleading guilty, the psychological trauma of that is enough. They received the full benefit of punishment. Like, oh, my gosh. And you said something just a second ago. I say in my presentations all the time, I can't get out of bed in the morning if I think people are going to rip me off all the time. And I can't. We can't live like that. But I also say, do I think that Sally, the office manager, gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to rip off Dr. E for fifteen hundred bucks today? I have said in the past, I don't think she does. And, and now this is where my head's exploding. And, and all I'm sharing with you is, is that you are engaging in projection bias. I, I know. I, you know, you're engaging in a projection bias. And that, you see, okay, let me back up a bit because I got to unpack a little bit, if I may. Yes. What what a lot of people do, Kelly, and and I'm and I'm just going to use you as an example, if I may, is that sometimes our weakness is in our attitude. And the weakness is in our attitude is what exposes us to exploitation. Okay, and that's, you know, you know, that's a difficult one to swallow because we don't want to think the worst of people. But yet at the same time, if we are really bluntly honest, if, if we want to think the best of them, well, why don't we just get rid of our internal controls? Why do, why, do we, why do we have to have a criminal code? Why do we have to have contracts between people? Okay, we, you know, there's going to have to be a reckoning about how at times people are viewed. And this doesn't mean that we have to be paranoid. It doesn't. No, it's just that there has to be a matter of fact, honest discussion in the context of white collar crime of what we're doing. Let me give an example and I'll be brief. Uh, Many years ago, uh, I had to represent uh, a fraud offender. He was the office manager to a doctor. Okay, I would have to say about a half a million dollars he took. Okay, he went to prison. I spoke to the lawyer. And I just said in passing, Kelly, you know, did did the doctor ever think about maybe getting some internal controls? And his response was, well, that's what the accountant was for. He getting there was no need for internal controls because that's what the accountant is there for, that that there's this implied understanding that he's going to be honest. All right. Why do you know? To me, what internal controls are just matter of fact. We do them as a matter of fact to protect the safeguards of an organization. But do you see what I'm saying? This is what I mean. Let me give you another example. 
sexual assault offenders have to register. They have to register in order to give. They have to stay away from kids. They have to stay away from parks, et cetera, et cetera. Why do we have those type of internal controls for these individuals? Okay. Why do we do that? Because we're trying to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. Well, why doesn't that same mindset, that same attitude apply when it comes to white collar crime? Think of all the bankruptcies that we have because a business didn't have internal controls. Or they say, well, my employees are like my family. Well, they're the first ones that are going to rip you off. Okay. And I'm, you know, it's like I say it jokingly, but not jokingly. And there ha- that's why I wrote the book in part, because there's just so much mythology around this crime classification. And I would not have written it unless I was in the trenches. Because at times, the problem that I have, Kelly, with academia, not that I don't use them because it, I do use them heavily. But sometimes the problem is, is that academia, they study crime from a distance. Yes. They don't have in your face criminality. Or what will happen is, well, I'll go and visit them at the at the prison. And of course, you have it's a kumbaya moment. Everybody's in love. They're going to be spending the next 15 years with you. Why wouldn't they be trying to make a nice impression? You're going to write a nice article about them. Right. Try seeing what they're like when there's real something at stake, what their real true insides are, that mask that's going to really come off. Then we get get all sorts of dynamics. (laughs) Okay. So back to the judge, because I read this and I was like, oh my God, I can't even believe this. There's another guy. Um, Offender Joe Collins, he, you know, losses of $2.4 billion. The sentencing judge believed that Collins' crimes did not truly reflect his character and stated, quote, there's no doubt that, but for this matter, Mr. Collins is a certifiable saint. Like, what the bleep? Have we ever called a rapist or a drug dealer a certifiable saint? Which actually, I wrote down Pablo Escobar. He did a lot of good in areas. He built schools. He did things like that. Would we ever call Pablo Escobar a saint? Right. And I would say we shouldn't. But also, now you made a great point. Look at what Pablo (laughs) Escobar did. Pablo Escobar engaged in charity. What do you think Ken Lay did? What do you think of Enron? What do you think Andrew Fastow did? What about uh, Capone? Al Capone. What, I know. Did Ber- what did Bernie Madoff do? They all engaged in charitable works because that is a deflection. Because if you're engaged in charitable works, there's no way that you would ever go and engage in fraud. Let, set aside homicide as a, as a possibility. But fraud? Oh, my God, no. And in fact, guess what? What was uh, the, the one from WorldCom? Um, Bernie, Bernie Bernard. Bernie Ebers. Okay. Who would go to church, cry at the at the prayers, right? Because what is that? Maybe it is guts. He believes it. How do I know what they believe, really? But you know what? They're going to donate money, of course, with the fraud money that they got. They'll say that it's their money they're donating, but it's fraud money, and it's a deflection. Again, what happens? Then the people go and they start to believe them because how can somebody that goes to my church do this? So until this issue is resolved, and I don't really believe it it can be, I don't think it can be, it can be mitigated possibly, 
But I just think like this issue with the judge that you're referring to. Okay. The judge saw, and and I can't recall if she was a male or female judge. It doesn't matter to me. Okay. But the point is they saw themselves in that fraud offender. Exactly. And that's what, and, and there we go. We get the, we get, look at that. And, and what is also that judge doing? And you'll see this with the other examples in the book. They engage in what I call the, the, the rationalization of the metaphor of the ledger, that somehow all the good they did, well, guess what? It'll shave down the bad they did. Really? When do we get to go and apply the metaphor of the ledger to a rapist? When do we do that to an arsonist? Do we say, you know what, what a great guy this arsonist was. And in fact, when they burned the building down, they made sure nobody was inside the building. So you know what, we should be charitable when we sentence that person. Regardless of the fact that the person now is without a home or without a business and their livelihood may be uh, destroyed. Do we do that? We don't do that because we don't have morally ambiguity when it applies to these people. We don't have that out. If somebody is raping a child, what is going to be the charity we give that person? What, 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 there isn't going to be any. No. Nope. Okay. But you know what? Somehow we're going to find that charity for the fraud offender, regardless of the harm that they did. Point number two, a lot of times, Kelly, with fraud, the victimology is, is, is viewed as diffuse. It's diffuse, kind of like it doesn't really hit us in the face, like a, like a street level crime. Somebody puts a gun in your face, give me your money. It's there. You feel it. It's visceral. But let's say, for example, the the insurance that you pay and I pay for our cars, our homes. Part of that insurance premium is to make up for the fraud that that company lost. Right. It's a it's an indirect cost to us. We don't feel it the way we would say a street level effect. But people don't understand. What about what about Bernard Madoff and his shenanigans? Okay, people lost their livelihoods. Some people committed suicide. Right. Yeah. And he's there claiming like, oh, look at all the money I made my my victims. What money? It was all fraud, Bernie. But somehow, at least in that case, the sentencing judge gave him the 150 years that he deserved, because at least as I as I state in the book is that he viewed he viewed at least the harm. And the impact on our system as something sacred to protect. Just like when you go and you sentence somebody for homicide, what is sacred? Life is sacred. And that's why somebody's going to get the years in prison that they're going to get. And that's what I liked about that. At least that judge had the intestinal fortitude to say, you know what? Damage was done here. It wasn't just the individual damage, but it was damage to the system. It was damage to the credibility of a system. That needs to be protected. But that's what I'm saying. At least there was somebody there who at least thought about the sentence and didn't take it for granted. A lot of these fraud offenders, what happens? They get out and then they write a book to redeem themselves. And then they talk about this is what they do. They talk about how wrong they did what they did. But then they say, gee, it wasn't wrong and it was not my fault. It's really an interesting dynamic. They never talk about, say, for example, the process that they want to exploit. It's always they give this impression, Kelly. Yeah, I just this little wrong, but they don't tell you the process that they took to get to the wrong. All the people that they bullied, all the people that they intimidated and and that to set those people up for to go to prison. No. And they always have that little out. 
Well, so this is interesting. I grew up um, in Portland and recently there was a Ponzi scheme trial. And I know one of the defendants, not well, like he grew up in my neighborhood. My parents were friends. I haven't seen him in, you know, decades. And um, he was found guilty with the two other, you know, people of the Ponzi scheme. And um, we have a mutual friend. And I said to my mutual friend, I said, you know, they're going to ask you to write a letter. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I said, you were fraternity brothers. He's probably going to ask or they're probably going to try and get letters to for sentencing because he's going to be sentenced in September. The more letters. Now, how many um, I'm going to say drug dealers whose peers can't write. Like literally can't write. Ask their friends to write letters to the judge before their sentencing. I, I've never had that happen. I cannot <laughs> recall one incident. Um, and I'm just, and I'm, that's, that's my blunt answer. Yeah. Because like, let's, I mean, really these letters to the judge, like. But sometimes they, what you have to understand and consider is this Kelly, especially when it comes to white collar offenders in typically the ones that I'm referring to are the ones that are sensationalized because typically, as I've said in my lectures, I do believe that on the whole, fraud is a risk-free offense. That when you look at the amount of fraud that takes place versus the amount of accountability, it's not even comparable. It's just not comparable. All right. Think about it. Uh, You know, uh, a county has a certain budget. Do we go and spend that money in order to say, well, we've made 100 arrests of people peddling narcotics, or do we say we made arrest on one person who committed the fraud? Where are they going to spend the money? We know where. That gets back to the, the, political, the politicalization of crime. But anyways, the reality is, especially in some of these higher level, I've seen letters, uh, and I can't recall the name of the individual, but he had people, I believe, like maybe people from Microsoft, very high level people, politicians, CEOs. And the the reality is, is that those letters are also meant to put an implied pressure on that judge. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know what? You really think you want to be Supreme Court justice someday? Do you really want to hammer my friend that hard? And I'm sorry, but you know what? Judges are political animals like anybody else. And I'm not here to take away anything from their ambition. Uh, I work with fantastic judges. But to say that there are no judges who are not going to look at those letters and think that that a message is being sent to them, please be lenient. Look at, for example, that quote that you just said. He's a certifiable saint. He got a year and one day. Yeah. And I think he was facing up to a life sentence. And and it was in the millions. I, I, I can't recall how much, but the amount of money was in the millions. And he got a year in one day versus, say, somebody who is peddling narcotics. Should they get the sentence that they deserve? I'm not debating that. I am saying is, is that the disproportionate sentence that this individual received versus, say, somebody who might be peddling narcotics. 18 years old, you may be looking at a minimum of six to 30 years potentially. And you had, and you had what, maybe a few hundred bucks in your pocket versus this individual. 
I mean, I look at Elizabeth Holmes's sentence. She got, I think, 11 years and a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Watch how fast she gets out of prison. Watch how fast she gets out of prison. Her her co-defendant, Mr. Balwani, I can't remember his first name. I believe he already had, he got a sentence, I think, 13 years. Watch how fast he gets out. So, so that's why I'm getting to you is that there's just, there's, a, there's a lot, there are power dynamics here that could be discussed, but you, I think we've made the point that it's just in a, we compartmentalize white collar crime and it's in a whole different area of its own. And that's why I wrote the book to just demystify this for people once and for all. Well, then this goes to, um, this is on page 27. White collar offenders, quote, tend to divide fellow prison inmates into two broad categories, those criminals and people like me. And then I'm not tattooed or pierced. And and then it's like we think our education and background separates us from the other criminals around us. And it's it's oh, my God, it's so true. Look at like. I mean, actually, I was listening to Pivot podcast the other day and they were talking about Elizabeth Holmes and and Kara Swisher, who I think is very, very bright. She said Martha Stewart went to prison for insider trading. She did not go. I mean, I pushed back on that so hard. She went to prison for obstruction of justice, lying to an FBI agent. But again, like. (laughs) I mean, this person who I know who's going to be sent to prison he doesn't see himself as a criminal. I know that he would never see himself as a criminal. He'd say, you know, if, and I don't, you know, I don't know this. He would say, you know, things happened. Not it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the saying, and it's, I don't know, pop psychology or what, or not where you say I run daily versus I'm a runner. There's a very different thing in our head. I made a mistake. I exploited an internal control Instead of I'm a criminal. And and because what this person is doing is in their mind, they are looking at all the good things they've done in life. And they're saying that my good outweighs whatever bad that I did. Let me give you another example. I know a lot of, well, I don't know them, but I'm in the circle of people who have committed homicides. All right. And Many of them don't see themselves as violent people. Why? Because there's always somebody else who's more violent than them. Okay. Well, I, you know what? I just killed one person. Look at them. They killed the the family. It is amazing what the mind will do for rationalization. Okay. And I remember speaking to a neuropsychologist. He says, rationalizations are when basically the primal need to survive is coupled with your intellect. And to me, that's what people do regardless of the crime classification. Those quotes that you showed, again, what are those people doing? They are looking at somebody who commits crime. They are the stranger. They are more further away from what they are like. Therefore, they represent a certain value system that they don't have. So, hey, I can... You know, I'm well-educated. They are not. I'm well-groomed. They are not. Look at the circle of my friends. They don't have that. It doesn't take much for people to rationalize away their uh, accountability. It's it, it just isn't. Look at, you know, 
I try to study history and I look at what many people who've committed atrocities. It's the same thing. It's the same dynamic. And if we can just strip away the mythology and, and, and really look at it for what it is, I think people would, I think, be better off. Why is that? Because if we don't do that, Kelly, people engaged in what I refer to as a flawed risk assessment. I don't need to have internal controls because I have an accountant who is my cousin. So why do I need to spend X amount of money on internal controls? I can, you know, maybe that person is uh, trustworthy. That's not the point we have as a matter of fact. All right. So until we are able to really look at this with what with eyes wide open, we're just going to constantly be taken for granted. We're going to be, we're going to be exploited. Organizations are, people are, and when you when you strip away the 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 rose colored glasses, I think we approach the situation with more sobriety, with a little bit more sobriety. But as long as these myths still prevail, we're going to be having this conversation. This conversation will not go away, Kelly. Well, so you should see how many notes I took. Okay, wound this one: accidental drug dealer. Is there right. ever an accidental drug dealer? No, we're no. like accidental fraudster. I mean, no. Diane Katani, her first theft was actually technically an accident. But do we ever say accidental drug dealer? Do we ever say accidental arsonist? That that the one where the, where I talk in the book about the accidental fraud offender. That's in a fraud examination textbook. <laughs> I mean, do you see how we keep perpetuating these myths? Or you'll see it in in some handbooks. Oh, you don't have to worry about the fraud offender being violent if you interview them. This is in a in a in a handbook. So again, what happens? You internalize this information, and then you know how we always we say, well, you should trust your intuition, your gut. Well, if your intuition is based on flawed information, your intuition is going to be wrong, which means you can end up exposing yourself to harm. Think about it. If 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 this person is an accidental fraud offender, then this is the next step. That means they never had the intention. I'm sorry. Fraud. There's civil and criminal. It can be criminal without the state of mind. When you say accidental, it cannot be a crime. You need to have the requisite state of of a state of mind, be it intent, knowingly, or perhaps recklessness. But when you say accidental, then it's no longer a crime. The way it is characterized is patently wrong. Just from a just from a purely legal perspective, setting aside the problem that it has in terms of the type of flaw, type of risk assessment you're going to end up engaging in. So you look at fraud offender, excuse me, fraud examiners who go and, and do their due diligence. I'm going to go and I'm going to meet this person at their business late at night. I don't have to worry about anything happening to me because you know what? I, re- I remember reading in the handbook that White collar offenders are non are nonviolent, and they don't represent the type of proclivities that a street level offender would. That's basically was the message in their handbook. So what happens? You don't tell anybody where you're going. 
your employer doesn't know where you're going. You decide to meet that person on their terms at night at their business. And then all of a sudden, you, you, you know what, you go missing. And that happens because nope. that person may, because that person got into a routine. All right. My job is to be a fraud examiner or a forensic accountant or a forensic auditor. But I don't have to worry about this person. They're not capable of doing this until they do it. And then you go missing. So this is what I mean when I say that until we strip away the mythology of this crime classification, we will have this conversation and people will be exploited as organizations will. Which leads me to the better the better um, term, unexpected fraud offender. I love that. And I, I think, thought, yeah, I, I thought that that was excellent. a better, I'm sorry. I just thought that that was a better characterization of what people feel. So it's kind of like, it's not accidental. I think the shock to the person is because it's unexpected. I never expected this person to go down the path of being a fraud offender. And I just thought it was a better way to characterize what they are feeling. Well, yeah. And yeah. Okay. Okay. So then I what happens is that and what fraud offenders are good at doing is that they, they are good at also making them look themselves, look at like a, a hero at times where I had to do this for whatever reason Or, boy, I wish I had an alternative to doing this, but I had to go down this path. So they always have more of an out than other crime classifications. Because what happens is that you're mixing at times, Kelly, in organizations, if we're talking to, say, fraud in organizations, you have both legal and illegal activities commingled. And And to try to disentangle that, all right, maybe hard, but they also have more outs because they can say, I committed the fraud to save people's jobs. I did it to save the company, et cetera, et cetera. Regardless, well, you, you may have actually, you know, exploited your investors and the bank. That's a separate issue. Okay. But, you know, they have more outs. I did this presentation for, I call it my Masters of the Universe group, and I couldn't do a lot of this normal examples that I do. So I gave the example and you brought this up. Um, So, okay, we say that, you know, Tom is master of the universe. He owns a company and um, he finds out that his biggest client customer isn't going to sign the contract for next year until the following week. And that technically puts him out of loan covenants. Okay. But he's like, if I do that, I'm going to have to lay off Joe in accounting and he's got a kid who needs health insurance. And really, it's just a date. But in his rationalization, he's just he's saying, well, if I if I don't have Joe backdated, you know, right. my loan's going to get called. I'm going to have to lay Joe off. His kid's going to go without health insurance and God forbid, you know, get sick and go in the hospital and bankrupt them. And they go down this path. Well, that's the same thing a drug dealer could say. If I don't go and sell these narcotics, I'm not going to be able to do this and I can't buy that. And, you know, whatever the, the reasons are, do we give them an out? No. So do you see what I'm saying? It's crime classification neutral. You've done something wrong. You have your reasons. And your reasons are not 
enough to offset the harm you've committed. It's a crime. Also consider this, though, too, Kelly. Look at the government. How often is it that the government's going to go after a company? Gee, do we really want to go after this company? Look at all the people they employ. And you know what? I'm the elected official and I'm coming after them. And that could cost me votes because their jobs are at stake. And we need the tax revenue on top of it. So you see, even 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 who we go after as the government, I'm not trying to put down prosecutions. That's not the point. But the point is, how is it? That with the amount of fraud, where is the where where do we see real government prosecution of white collar crime that you see? Where, where is it? But boy, I can assure you, you will see in in the newspapers. Well, the, these these mobsters were arrested, and then they'll go and display all the narcotics that they found at the border and the guns. So they'll have their big photo op there, okay, or. Well, we arrested all of these people who were hijacking cars. Great. I'm all for that. But when it comes to this, where where do we really see that type of prosecution so that the public knows that certain people in that realm are being held accountable? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. So um, on page 25, we're going backwards. Okay. Um, why do we as a profession need have a need to attribute, sorry, good virtue to fraud offenders when whether they are good or not is irrelevant? Like we don't again, we never say a rapist is good. We never. I've never seen that. I've done this as I I've prosecuted killers and rapists. I've been a defense counsel. I mean, I've I've done the whole gamut. I have never seen that. I've never I've never seen that. You may have somebody who might uh, at times maybe a family member who might give some character evidence about them that in order to just show that, well, they're not as evil as everybody says they are. I've seen that. But you don't get these accolades. That's what I'm getting at. The accolades showing my God. Look at the phenomenal work this person did. You don't get that, but you will with, with fraud offenders, especially at the high level. You do see that. So, you know, I just think that we are just kind of stuck in a in a in a in a fraud in a in a fog about this crime classification, and I think it's societal. I think I see it in the judiciary. I see it, you know, I I look at uh, the uh, law enforcement. Most of them don't really understand it in terms of how do you investigate it? Are they even willing to do it? Because most won't do it because they don't understand it and they don't want to put the resources into doing it. And they don't like to look stupid. I mean, look at the feds never went after Steve Cohen. Right. Like, I mean, do you want to be the agent that goes after Steve Cohen? Right. Oh, my gosh. This is so funny. So this is like me going on off. OK. Have you okay. read any of Patrick Radden Keefe's work? I, uh, Patrick, who was that? Patrick Radden Keefe. He wrote The Empire of Pain about the Sackler family. I am familiar with it. I did not read it, but I'm familiar. Oh, don't get me started about the Sackler family. I oh, mean, no. OK. So, oh, my gosh. this is So, so I'm going to put a link in the show note because Patrick Radden Keefe um, He's an amazing writer. He writes for The New Yorker. And you're going to appreciate this because he said 
he, he was at a very like the, the I'm going to say the nicest school in Portland, Oregon, because they just remodeled any. I'm sure some alumni. I don't know. Whatever. He said he is more scared of billionaires suing him than drug dealers. I believe it. And it just, you know, so he wrote the book Empire Pain about the Sacklers and talk about like the shaming, the biggest, they're not going to be criminally prosecuted. They're civil prosecution. They actually, by the time they have to pay off the $6 billion, they're literally going to be richer than the $6 billion they paid off, apparently, if you extrapolate it. Um, the biggest thing for them is their name is coming off of various art museums in such. And look at the damage. Look, I mean, think about it. The, the, you know, I, I'm not even too sure. I, I mean, I'm usually not without words, but I'm without words. I, you know, and I say that with a heavy heart because I see what happens to people on a daily basis in our communities that are hurt both with illicit narcotics and also prescribed and what happens and how their life is destroyed. Where's the accountability? When, when, what, where is it? And, you know, I got into a conversation with a colleague of mine and, and, and I was just blunt and it's hard at times for me to admit it, but you know what? The powerful protect themselves. Oh yeah. They protect themselves. And what about all the people that were harmed because of their greed? Yeah, you so, got you got to read his newest book is the Rogues Gallery, and it's a collection of like New Yorker articles. Um, I can't. Uh, El Chapo yeah. asked Patrick Radden Keefe to ghostwrite his memoir. Okay. Uh, but you know what? The interview that I'm going to put in the show notes with these high school kids, the questions they asked him, I like shivers. Uh, absolute shivers. But the core of his thing, which uh, this is interesting, I think and you'll appreciate it, is he, he wants to know people's secrets. And and this goes to Elizabeth Holmes. There's a clip of her where they ask her, tell us your secrets. And she says, I have no secrets. Everyone has secrets. Right. So and then Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway compared Elizabeth Holmes to the Sacklers. There is no comparison. None. No. What, and, what happened? Yeah. And so we have this, you know, Elizabeth Holmes gets this thing in the New York, the New York Times. The Sacklers did for many, many years get accolades all the time. And so their punishment is just taking their names off of buildings. Right. That's and, it. Yeah. That's it. It's the public shaming, but it's in their case, it's nowhere close. No, the damage that they have done to people is is not calculable. And this is what I mean when and I've been in the criminal justice system for for years. This is why that there's such a disparity about how people are held accountable. And this is why a lot of times people have a problem with our sentencing, 
And I want to make it very clear. I am not saying that non-white collar criminals should not be held accountable or should not receive a sentence that is appropriate. What I'm sharing with you, though, is why does this crime classification get such special treatment? Well, you know what I mean? Why is it? Why, why does the Sackler family get to walk? Why do they get to walk? Because, you know, for me, the powerful just protect themselves. And that's what happened here. And I just think it's, you know, who's going to be the one that's going to go to the Department of Justice and say, you know what? And it's not like they don't have evidence, Kelly. Oh, I know. They, you know, it's not like they don't have evidence. But, you know, that's, that's, that's where I think uh, at times people have problems and that we compartmentalize this crime classification differently than others. And I think there are ramifications. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, my God. Yeah. OK, so I'm going to put that in the show notes because um, it, it's yeah, it's frightening. I mean, it's such a good interview. His work is so incredibly good. Um, he actually has his J.D. He's not a practicing attorney, but he's an excellent writer. And I thought it was one of the best interviews I've ever heard. And I love that it was high school kids asking him these questions. Okay, so we're going back to your book because I just, yeah. Okay, um, this is a great quote. I love this because I always say, you know, with fraud, there's no dead body. You know, there's no, okay. Writing about street level offenses is simply easier since more can identify and empathize with victims quicker than they could understand the complexities of accounting fraud, for example, or its impact to society. Again, that's the dead body. It sells papers. Dead bodies sell papers. Well, not anymore, but, you know, well, in the and, olden days. And the thing is, is that for decades, that's basically been what has been our entertainment. Right? Movies. That is what has been uh, entertainment. Uh, sometimes you'll have something like, say, for example, Michael Douglas in Wall Street, something of that of that nature. And, and uh, you'll see it. But... Typically, it's it's what's sensationalized. And uh, that's why also the, the research by scholarship has not focused on on fraud as a whole as much as, say, street level offenses. It, they, they just haven't. It's not there. We've done better. I think like what you do, what I've tried to do, what your friend tried to do, writings. I do think it does help. I do, I do think it helps, does permeate. Uh, perhaps slowly, but you know what, at least if it can help a few people protect themselves, so be it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but what's interesting, if I could just say, I, I remember, and I wrote it in the book about with wall street and I know we're dating ourselves with the movie Wall with Michael <laughs> Douglas, but you know what, when they interviewed people about wall street, you know what many of the wall street traders said? They wanted to be Gordon Gecko. Oh, yeah. That's who they identified with. Think about it. The whole, you know, Oliver North's message was, let's not go down this path. Let's try to do something else. And yet the people that watched it on Wall Street, they saw him as a hero. You see, that's that's that whole crime. Uh, that's that. The, uh, it's called social identification. Who do you identify with? For example, young gang members look up to older gang members. Okay. What do you have here? Well, you have Wall Street traders on the floor 
for example, who are looking at Gordon Gecko, and there he is, their hero as a trader, well, as, a tra- as, a, as a stock trader. Yeah. That's social identification. There it is. Well, and now going back to Elizabeth Holmes, I know we're jumping all over, but this is like so much fun for me. And this is like mind blowing and like it's changing my whole thing. Um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes was only convicted on the four counts of basically stealing from the old white guys. She was not convicted on any um, health related, you know, charges of, yes. you know, and um as an eight-year-old, well, I don't know if you knew this, her dad worked at Enron. Is that right? As an eight-year-old, she said she wanted to be a billionaire. Okay. So is that intent? What, that you want to be a billionaire? <laughs> no, it's, it's her, no, it's just her motives. It's her agenda. Well, yeah. So the, the, I don't know if it's irony or the small world that we live in, that her no, dad worked no. at Enron. But and- I will tell you something, though. That is a fantastic association that you're making because, and I don't know the dynamics of the father and his relation to Enron, but there was a worldview at Enron where if you could uh, skip the rules, get around the rules, do things that were basically illegal, but you could get away with them. If at the end of the day, it got you what you wanted, the ends justify the means. That philosophy permeated from the top to the bottom. I'm saying it would be interesting if, you know, what is the father's worldviews as to what happened at Enron? Does he think that it was wrong about what Lay did, Ken Lay, what Andrew Fastow did with Jeff Skilling, or was he siding with them? What kind of philosophies did he teach his kids? Is it the survival of the fittest? It's like, if you can get a, you see what I'm saying? This is interesting now. That kind of social history on her and to back into that would be fascinating. Well, there's some other, and I don't know exactly. There's some financial issues with her family, like, you know, the silk to clogs in three generations. Like I think that her family several generations back were very wealthy. Right. So there's some, so, you know, and okay. I'm going to throw this out here because you guys were just spitballing here. Cause I want, I want Frank's opinion. Um, what do you think of when I say money is the root of all evils? I would have to say, I, I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that money is the root of, of all evil. It's I, I know it's kind of a catchy phrase, but uh, I don't I don't see that. I don't I, I to me, it's a platitude. It's just, you know, it's I just don't agree with that. I just think that uh, evil is a very uh, I want to say it, it's complicated, but it's not complicated. And it depends what kind of evil you're talking about. So, well, yeah. And I think it's people's. Um, people's experience with money, people's um, way that they relate to money. So it could be related to evil, but I think people can do evil things uh, for money, but I don't think that that that's necessarily, I'm just not saying that that is the causation or the impetus. It could be, I think that there are a a lot of people who, who fall in that category for sure. But I, you know, I'm just not so convinced of that. 
Okay, so as we're finishing up, and Frank is going to come back, and we're going to do some special things this summer because you've really remotivated me to do some special things this summer because we, I want to have him talk about a case in Utah. So we're going to do that. But um, if you could interview any, I'm going to say criminal, not fraudster. I'm going to say any criminal. Who would it be? Uh. Oh, uh, wow. That's, and it, it can be white or non-white collar. Yeah. Yeah. It can be either one. I yeah, would, I would, be. I would like to interview Andrew Fastow. Oh, why is the, what, what's the meaning behind sure. that? The, the reason is that, uh, and I do us in the book, I do a separate section on Enron. I yes. unpack what happened at Enron. In that it's not just necessarily Andrew, but people like him in that what they do is they give the impression that um, they don't understand what's going on in this respect. Well, I broke the rules, but I didn't really know I was breaking the rules or I was just bending them. But they don't talk about the process that they went through to break the rules. Let me give you an example. At an organization, people at the top usually cannot um, commit the fraud just by themselves. They yeah. need to have people beneath them. You know what I'm saying? Both, you know, uh, laterally and, and vertically to help them. But they never talk about that process on how they got other people roped in or how they destroyed other people's lives to get to that point. And you see that a lot with high level executives and that when they go on their mea culpa tour, you know how they go and, and they just talk, but they never really talk about, well, let me tell you how I got this person fired or I ruined this person's life to get to, to, a, to, to where I wanted to go or how I threatened this individual. That's what I would like to do. I would like to be able to ask him pointed questions about the process he went through to commit the fraud, not just the type of fraud that he committed, but what was the process? Let's talk about that. And what was his answer? For example, how did you treat Sharon, uh, Sharon, I think it was Sharon Watkins. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about that relationship. How did you treat her? Ooh. Do you see where I'm going with this? Now we're going to have a real conversation, Andrew, about what happened at Enron. Oh, so that's fascinating because I joke that like a CFO doesn't even know how to do a journal entry, like literally right. in the system. And right. so how do they, yeah. How do they actually get that? Okay. Oh my gosh, Frank. Okay. This is amazing. Um, we're going to have you back to do a specific red collar um, case. And I, I apologize. I kind of sandbagged Frank today because um, his book is just, it's, I mean, honestly, Frank, it's causing me to question a lot of things I've said in a good way, like in a, like, no, I understand Check my bias at the door. And, and I will tell you, it wasn't always easy to write, but if you're somebody that works towards the truth as best as you can, even though there may be gray, but you're trying to get towards the truth and to have that clarity of thought, I just think it's, it, it's much better for us. It's just much better for us overall. Uh, I think, I just think of when I think of the people that would tell me something, 
And I would say, you know what? You really got to be careful. I'm just seeing something here that may be harmful for you. You know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. But now that I've recalibrated my mind into how to think about exploitation, crime exploitation, things of that nature, I just think that we just, I think you become a better person and you become a more helpful person. And I think the truth has to be written at times. It, I, and that's what I wrote. I wanted this to debunk the myth of this crime classification, both white collar, red collar. You see judges, as I quote, are saying, oh, well, you know, white collar offenders don't threaten the lives of other people. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, where's this person coming up with this? Or I look in, in, in fraud books. Uh, oh, you don't have to worry about interviewing a white collar criminal that they're going to be violent against you. Where are they getting this from? Because what happens, yeah, what happens is, Kelly, and I'll be brief, is that at times you get a discipline that is asked to answer a lot of questions about an offender, and they're not qualified. And to understand white-collar crime, you have to approach it from a multidisciplinary perspective. And that's what this book does. It gives you the sociological, the behavioral, criminological, and that way you have a nice bird's eye view. So that when Kelly, oh, what happened? All of a sudden, she reads something that happened at an organization. In your mind, you should quickly be able to put together a template about a plausible explanation of what went down and the people involved and how it how it occurred. Well, what I like, and I had this written in my notes, but okay, two more things. God, this is too much. Um, Three more things. Okay, greater collaborations. And I'm all about collaborating. One of my favorite hashtags is hashtag sharing is caring. And we need collaborations between industry, academia, legal. Like we need to share, like truly. And you do that. This one was great. White collar bandits. I had never heard that before. And that was what in 1907, right. I think. Right. Yeah, right. 1907. Um, and I just I had never heard of white collar bandits. I love that. It's just like, oh my gosh. I yeah. And then the other thing, and I have heard this, the and I can't ever um pronounce it right. Criminaloid which describes individuals from the upper echelons of society who participates in illicit schemes causing harm to others. Um, like, <sighs> and, and it goes back to that, that, that time back, and I can't remember his name, where he says the problem society has with white-collar offenders is our, is our uh, moral ambiguity about them. Even over 100 years ago, he's saying, Look at the damage they're doing. And yet we as a society simply have a, 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 a moral misunderstanding about what they're engaged in. So we're still living it. Oh, yeah. Like we don't we don't have moral ambiguity when it comes to terrorism. You know, you don't in your mind say, well, OK, let me let me see how great of a person that was when they were in school or who did they give. Cheer- we don't even go there. I know. You know what I'm saying? But yet this crime classification has a, we put it in a separate box. And until we pull it out of that box and just put it in the same box as everybody else, we're just opening ourselves up to problems. Okay. Then this just gave me this crazy idea and it would be impossible to do, but let's just throw this out there. Um, The pre-sentence reports, which I used to love to read. I bet the pre-sentence reports quantity of pages for white collar 
is 10x any other offense. I, I would probably say that that's probably accurate. <laughs> I, 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 I think that that's probably on point. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look at look at look at Elizabeth Holmes, you know, from the time she was convicted to the time she went to prison, how much time went by, you know, what, about 18 months, I think I am speculating. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't remember anybody that I know had that had that freedom. No, you're found guilty within 90 days. You're going to be either you're, you're going to get a sentence and you're going to serve it out. Okay, so if there's anyone out there who can help us with the statistic of pre-sentence reports for white collar versus any other crime, like send it to us because that would be like, I bet it's a huge thing. So, okay, Frank, I can't thank you enough. I just, yeah, this was wonderful. And you really have re-energized me. I, I thank you. First of all, thank you for having me again. And it really means a lot to me that you've shown interest. Thank you. Uh-huh.